Democracy may be only a few steps removed from anarchy, but at least it's not as loud. take a stab out of here uh colonel mustard in the kitchen with the ridge mm. no dang no. Okay. So it was it was close no actually it was chancellor shandos in the ops deck with the force lance what mm-hmm. i don't that is not what i got what cards are you playing with i'm just i don't know just playing with you you want to do a show whatever no sure yeah let's just do a show okay oh i think it's rolling hey Welcome back to Drive Back the Night and Andromeda Series Podcast. I am Ryan Mazzocco, and with me as always is... And when said in air means... Uh, Ethan Maestri. That's right. We are looking at All Great Neptune's Oceans this week, episode 10 of the Andromeda Series. And uh, what we do here is we, we take each episode one by one, pick them apart, find the things we like, find the things we don't like... And uh, just really have a good discussion about each one of those. Now, Ethan, uh, All Great Neptune's Oceans, this is episode number 10, production number 110. Wow! Isn't We're that on track. I like so, this. And I'm hoping that uh, this is never going to get messed up again. <laughs> we have to drop this as a bit from now on. I we? guess so. Okay. It, well, okay. In, in, unless it gets off track, then I'm going back to it. It's, <laughs> okay. it's gold. So... Anyway, uh, you've been digging for some gold, haven't you? A little bit. Hey, am I going into fun facts? Yeah. All fun, right. We that got that it. kind of gold. Okay. Yeah. yeah, we do have some gold here for all great Neptune's Ocean. The first thing I came across was the title itself. I thought it was an unusual title. And if you stuck a gun to my head and made me guess, I would have guessed Shakespeare. And I was so gratified to find that it is actually a quote from a Shakespearean uh, play. Great. It comes from Macbeth. Mm. Uh, and in it, Lady Macbeth utters the line, Will all great Neptune's ocean wash this blood clean from my hand? Uh, she is feeling the weight of the guilt that even the oceans could not cleanse the blood from her hands from the murders that she's guilty of. She cannot escape the consequences of her actions. Uh, so yeah, so the, like, like any great sci-fi, we've, uh, I, we've already had some Shakespearean quotes uh, in... Oh, no, we haven't in Andromeda, have we? Uh, we have a reference to the prince. We've had that mm-hmm. from... Uh, right, Machiavelli. Yeah, Machiavelli, mm-hmm. Machiavelli from Double Helix. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. Uh, but we haven't had any Shakespearean quotes just yet, have we? Not that I've picked up on. I'm not going to say we haven't. Okay. Yeah. Um, but anyway, it was refreshing to see that here because, of course, Shakespeare shows up in a lot of sci-fi mm-hmm. and Andromeda is no different. So right. we have that uh, in, in this episode. So the title comes from Macbeth. This was uh, um, written by Walter John Williams. And Walter John w- Williams started writing historical fiction, specifically uh, sea adventure novels. But in the early 80s, that genre kind of tanked. 
And so that derailed him. He had a whole series of novels that he was planning on writing uh, about sea adventures, sailing from the 19th century. Um, but when that, when he got derailed from that, he went to uh, writing science fiction. So since the 80s, he's actually been a well-published novelist uh, in sci-fi. Uh, he's responsible for the books Hardwired, Metropolitan, The Rift from 2002. Uh, or in 2002, he actually wrote... Uh, one of the Star Wars novels from the uh, New Jedi Order series. It's a book that I've actually read. Wow. And it's uh, Destiny's Way. Okay. So, yeah, he's a well-published author in, in sci-fi. I'm happy to say I've read some of his work outside of Andromeda. Um, maybe not well-read, because <laughs> I'm not familiar with all the novels. And there's quite a number of them. I just I just hit some of the highlights from the late 80s through the 90s. Um, I thought it was interesting. He's actually quoted as saying... Uh, in talking about his having to move on from historical novels and going into sci-fi writing, uh, he, he says, I was forced into the desperate life of a science fiction writer. <laughs> so kind of an interesting quote. Interesting man. Now, our uh, actors, uh, some of the, the guest stars that we have here, uh, actress Michaela J. Now, interestingly enough, she played in the 1998 made-for-television movie Future Sport, which was actually a feature film written by Robert Hewitt Wolf. Oh, really? Yeah. So that's kind of her claim to fame, really. Mm -hmm. That's that's kind of her starting point. She played Lorelei in that story, uh, and then she has appeared in other television series like uh, the Millennium series, The Outer Limits, uh, a, another television movie called Living with the Dead, which she made with. Uh, well, there was quite a few in that one: Ted Danson, Mary Steenburgen, Jack Palance, and Queen Latifah. Hmm. We're all in this made-for-television movie. So, wow. uh, so she, she's had a, a, a few credits to her name, but uh, sadly, around 2005, her, her credits kind of taper off, and it doesn't seem like she's been that active, except for a few um, voiceover spots and some documentaries that she's done. You didn't happen to catch if she had ever been a Romulan in Star Trek? No. Hmm. That didn't show up in her credits. That's too bad, because she looked like she would have been a good Romulan. You know what? Now that you've said that, I, I could see it. Mm -hmm. I could see it. She just missed the boat on that. Hmm. All right. And then we have actor Malcolm Stewart. Now, this man has shown up in quite a bit of things. His face is, was familiar when I was watching it. And as I dug into his, his credits, he's been active since the mid-80s. And he's been in a lot of things that I've seen. Twilight Zone, MacGyver, Smallville. He has, uh, has had recurring roles in The X-Files as Dr. Sachs. Uh, he was director Paul Sims in James Cameron's Dark Angel series, and uh, even showing up as Marshall Baggett in the the reboot of the Battlestar Galactica that uh, aired on Sci-Fi, mm -hmm. that is, believe it or not, now ten years old. Wow! So yeah, he's been around in, in quite a few things. Uh, not so much in the feature films. The only movie that I recognized that I had probably seen him in was Jumanji, mm. and so uh, yeah, so. Good to see Malcolm Stewart. He plays Chancellor Chandros okay. in, in, this, uh, in this episode. So anyway, that's what I've got by way of uh, behind the scenes for the episode All Great Neptune's Ocean. Okay, there was quite a bit this week, wasn't there? Yeah, I actually enjoyed digging into this episode a little bit. Do you normally not? I try to, <laughs> but my attention span sometimes can be a little short. Sure, I get it. Well, you know, Ethan, I, I watched this episode, the whole thing, from the beginning to the end. So I know all about it. Uh, did you watch it? Do you know about it? Once or twice. Okay. Uh, just in case there's anyone out there who may not have watched it, would you mind telling us about it? What, what happened? Absolutely. So, high above the beautiful blue orb of Castilia, 
the crew of the Andromeda Ascendant is busying themselves with getting ready for a formal state dinner with a group of officials from the Castalian Republic. Among this group of water-breathing dignitaries is President Sebastian Lee, a leader and hero of the Castalian people. His efforts at the end of their war for independence united the various races of water and air breathers on the planet under one government. A great feat, but really one that pales in comparison to the effort that Rami is going to have to put forth in getting Becca to wear a dress to this dinner party. On their way to dinner, Lee informs Dylan that he expects to sign the charter the next day. A new world will be welcomed into the reestablished Commonwealth. Two down, 1.2 million to go. Then... Tyr enters the room, with a particularly dark cloud hovering over him. In a toast of his own, he accuses President Lee of the slaughter of Valsung pride, an offshoot of Tyr's Kodiak pride. He emphasizes his anger at this outrage by downing a flute of champagne and then crushing it with his bare hands. Cut to the title sequence that, by episode 10, is really starting to get pretty catchy. My 12-year-old son really likes it. Later, in private... Tyr informs Dylan that the Valsung were destroyed along with their orbital platform. The war was over. The Valsung were about to surrender, but Lee decided to blow them up. Dylan confronts Lee on this, and Lee suggests that they killed themselves, an idea that immediately smells fishy to Dylan. Dylan points out that Nietzscheans do not commit suicide. Colonel Yao, President Lee's security advisor, suggests that it may have been an accident but at this point, they may never know. President Lee still wants to sign the charter, but under one condition. Tyr must apologize for his breach of protocol. After Dylan gives him the greater good speech, Tyr agrees to apologize. He shows up to the formal ceremony to do so. But before the cameras get rolling, Lee requests a moment alone with Tyr. Everyone clears the area and leaves the two to speak. After a few moments, the presidential music is heard, and shots ring out inside the room. All rush inside to find Tyr convulsing on the floor and unconscious. And President Lee is dead. It appears that Tyr has shot the president. As Chancellor Chandros is sworn in as president, the calls for Tyr's head from the planet below and on board Andromeda are growing ever louder, putting Dylan in a difficult position. Dylan speaks with Tyr. But Tyr doesn't remember being in the room with the president and wants to know if they've discovered who killed Lee. Dylan and Becca have a discussion over whether Tyr is innocent or not. Tyr and Dylan talk again, and Tyr tells Dylan, essentially, seriously, dude, I've had some experience with this sort of thing. I would have done a much better job of not getting caught. Bottom line being, I didn't do it. With that established, Tyr wants to know if Dylan is going to go ahead and sacrifice him for the greater good. Dylan won't, but Harper certainly would. Harper explains how a force lance works to Colonel Yao. One of the features is its ability to fire smart bullets, and a security feature that shocks anyone that doesn't match the DNA of its owner. Tyr's lance did fire two shots, but curiously, they were fired straight down and at low velocity. The bullets then turned and homed in on the president, and Tyr was shocked by his own lance. All of this doesn't make much sense, but it's all that Yao needs. She's convinced of the Nietzschean's guilt. Dylan continues to investigate and does so by checking into the colonel's backstory. She was a slave, and her family died on that Valsung station that was destroyed. This gives her a potential motive for exacting revenge on the president, 
if she thought that he was in fact responsible for the destruction. Two, Chancellor Shandros could be a suspect as well. If there is one constant in any universe, it's that power corrupts. He could have had the president offed since he was the next one in line. Yao debunks this theory pretty quickly, though, since she reveals that Lee was going to step down as soon as the charter was signed. Chandos would have been in power within three days' time anyway. Meanwhile, the Castilian military is trying to board the Andromeda. But this boarding party is not exactly SEAL Team 6, and Dylan takes them out by using a force lance remotely, giving the team a shock that takes them out of the fight. This prompts Dylan to review the uses of the Force Lance, giving particular attention to its remote activation. Dylan has a theory that someone may have remotely activated Tyr's Lance, rendering him unconscious as he attempted to get it under control. Rami reviews her onboard records and discovers that in fact she may be the guilty party. Tyr confronts Yao at this point and claims that she killed the president, a claim that she refutes. Harper can't stand the idea of Rami being punished for something that she isn't responsible for, and so he goes to Dylan and claims responsibility for killing the president. Really, the whole situation is beginning to smell like fermented herring in the summer sun. Becca suggests that Andromeda cut its losses and leave, advice that Dylan simply cannot accept. He doesn't want to appear above the law. Rami is prepared to face the music, when Harper discovers something interesting in his examination of events on board ship. Shandos has avoided using the presidential music when making appearances, a curious breach of Castalian protocol. Dylan arranges a live broadcast of Rami's surrender, but before things can get rolling, Becca calls for the presidential music to cue, at which point Tears Lance fires, and Shandos begins ducking and weaving and pleading for his life. And with that, the jig is up. Chandos is responsible for Lee's death. But why? Chandos explains that Lee was planning to confess that both he and Chandos were responsible for the destruction of the Volsung station. Chandos was sure that this would cause a civil war, and so he murdered Lee in order to preserve the Republic. He recommends that they pin the blame on someone else to avoid this outcome. After taking custody of him, Colonel Yao attempts to stage a scenario in which she can kill Chandros, making it appear as if he's escaping, and then she can take the blame for both deaths and cover up the whole sordid affair. Dylan stops her, though, insisting on due process. The charter is ratified. Castalia comes into the new commonwealth, even though unrest prevails on Castalia. The end. Wow, Ethan, I gotta say, that was quite the fishtail. <laughs> Yes, it was, wasn't it? <laughs> the whole thing smelled fishy, didn't it? Oh, man. Yeah, it was. I hate to reuse, I reuse that pun, but, you know, what else are you going to do? <laughs> These are fish people. <laughs> Even Dylan used it. You know what? So. I actually thought I went pretty light on the, the fish puns mm -hmm. for, the, for the recap here. I, I'm kind of proud of myself. I exercised some self-control. Great. <laughs> so um, I'm wondering, I'm looking at the uh, little the little camel packs that the Castilians are wearing um, that's feeding the, the oxygenated water, I guess, into their gillnecks? Uh, yeah, some, yeah. Whatever, however it is that they breathe water. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering, because I know that you have a very small window. When you get a goldfish at the, go at the pet store, uh, you've got like an hour to get it home and get it in a fishbowl. 
or it, it dies. And, and you better let that water acclimate to whatever environment you're in. Yeah, and that's yeah. part of that's part of the window too. Yeah. So you don't have much time. No. I, I kind of wonder how often do they need to change that camel pack? Camel back? Huh? Camel back? Are you talking? Are you referencing the water packs like what we wear when we ride bikes or something? Yeah. Yeah, camel back. Camel back? Yeah. Camel, not camel pack? No, not camel pack. Camel pack makes more sense. Well, okay. it's like a backpack, but yeah. for a camel. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I have a question about those. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of engineering that went into those so that they can exist outside of water. Um, why couldn't they do anything to keep them from sounding like a juice box being <laughs> emptied? As, as they're breathing through the apparatus or whatever that is that's uh, oxygenating their uh, their their gills. It's just one of the trade-offs. I guess know. so. I actually kind of was wondering how in the world are they talking in the first place? Um, I uh, mean... Yeah. <clears throat> Go ahead. I'm sorry. I, well, you know, I okay, they've, they've engineered themselves genetically to be able to breathe underwater. So... Do they still have lungs? And if they do, then wouldn't they be rendered completely useless underwater? Here's here's what I when I was when I first the first couple of times I watched this episode, I kind of had a real problem with it because I'm sitting here thinking they've got scales, mm-hmm. you know, the, or it looks like scales. They've obviously got some some evolutionary changes going on here. Why are they talking? Why are they breathing? You know, why do they have noses? <laughs> you know, what evolutionary process led to this? And then I, I realized I had missed the uh, the cue that when Harper talks about the fact that they, or, or was it Becca that mentioned that they were genetically modified? I think it was Dylan. Was it Dylan? Somebody, that said it? Okay. yeah, one of the others had called them uh, fish or something yeah. like that. And he said, no, they're humans. Well, oh, oh, Harper. Harper calls them something like neck breathers or something like that. Yeah. But um, okay. So you're right. So Dylan makes the point. Well, they were genetically modified. They're humans, mm-hmm. and I missed that the first couple of times I watched it. So all of my my thoughts about production value and the evolutionary process that may have led to this species or whatnot, all of that just gets tossed out the window mm-hmm. <laughs> because right. I missed that point. So it at that point, it's like okay. They're human beings. Right. They just have gills. Mm-hmm. And then immediately I thought of Waterworld. Oh, I thought you were going to go Aquaman. <laughs> we could go there, but this isn't a comedy episode. <laughs> is it? it well, it kind of is. I guess I guess it is. Uh, no, but my thought was Waterworld because mm-hmm. Kevin Costner, he was human. He could breathe in air, but he also had gills. It's just these folks are really put themselves at a disadvantage with the engineering and the fact that they had to engineer these water packs in order to be out of water. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I guess the I guess the lungs are probably vestigial at this point. They're uh, not functional. I, they have to be, though. They got to be able to push through the vocal cords for them to be able to talk. Um, mm, you know, I hate yeah. to say this, but you know what makes a little bit more sense to me is uh, when when uh, on SpongeBob. <laughs> Sandy has to have the air tank on, right? Right, right? But when they go to the surface, SpongeBob and Patrick have to wear the water tank on their head. Yeah, you know, I, I'd kind of like to have seen something maybe a little more like that. I'm not. I'm just not sure about the things just going into the side of their neck. It seems intrusive, and 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 also, I just don't understand how the anatomy works. Yeah. No, I, I get that. Well, let's think about this too. Uh, I don't know if you noticed it, it when I was watching it. Uh, 
the second or third time, their voices do sound different. Mm, mm-hmm. They sound, they almost sound like they're, there's some, some sort of amplification maybe, or was that what it was? to me? It sounded like when somebody has like really bad chest congestion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like you got that gurgling sound with every yeah. word that they're saying. Yeah. Their voices sounded off. Mm-hmm. So there's something else going on there. You know, maybe there's a vocalizer built in or something. Yeah. I, I don't know. That could be. That actually could be what's going on. That's how I see it. Um, I do have a question. So this is a very um, structured uh, culture. Yeah. The, yeah. the Castalians. They have uh, musical cues for specific events. Mm-hmm. So wh- what is it Becca says? Or, or Rami. She said when they enter a room, mm-hmm. when to exit a room, when to make a toast. We saw that taking place. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, what is the Castalian um, cue music for time to go to the bathroom? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I mean, it's probably just uh, has the sound of water running. <laughs> yeah, some of the squeaks and and and, and, mm-hmm. and squawk sounds that are in their their music, you know, that's supposed to translate better in water rather yeah. than in air. Right, right. Um, uh, eerily similar to some sounds I've heard in public restrooms. Yeah. So, <laughs> but we won't go there. You mentioned toasting. Uh, speaking of toasting, enough already. Am I right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah, like, the... you can't even take a bite. It's like, okay, here's a toast. Great. Okay, now let's all sit down. Oh, another toast. Well, you know. I-, I thought it was interesting the president had to toast the toast. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's when it's gone. It's excessive. Yeah. It's kind of like having to send a thank you card for someone sending a thank you card. Yeah. Yeah. W- when there's, does it stop? There's politeness, and then there's, no, just yeah. stop talking. Thank goodness Tear came in and broke it up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How did Tyr know that everyone was toasting? Because <laughs> Well, you hold have... on. Hold on. He's already established. He has ears throughout the ship, apparently. Yeah. Because when the Nietzscheans showed up mm-hmm. in Double Helix, he was down in the weight room, mm-hmm. and he knew it. Right. He heard Dylan say, Nietzscheans. Mm-hmm. Right. And then he shows up on the view screen. Yeah. Now here, all of a sudden, it's like, I don't know, I guess he's just hanging out, listening on the intercom, just like, just was checking your, out what's your going buds. on. Probably, yeah. Probably nanobots. Probably nanobots or you, something. You think they're past Bluetooth? Might be. Okay. <laughs> Might be. <laughs> Somehow, he he's evidently listening he's in. He's, he's he knows what's going on, because right. he just walks in like he's been part of the party the whole time. Yeah. And he's like, oh, I have a toast. It's called smashing a glass in my hand and throwing it down. Quite effective, too. Yeah. Yeah. Seems like that would uh, hurt just a bit. Well, I mean, he's... He he must not have much pain in his hands. I mean, we we saw that also going back to double helix. Yeah, I mean he can just take a knife right to the palm of his hand. Doesn't even think about it. No. Nope. What's a champagne glass? Yeah, that's yeah. You're right. Uh, a little few shards of glass. Mm-hmm. No big deal. Right. A pair of tweezers and a, a glass of uh, Nietzschean scotch or something. And what what, what are Nietzscheans? Man, what's a Nietzschean brew? What must that taste like? Hmm. I bet it hurts. <laughs> Probably so. Uh, and and it, it's funny, we're all kind of gravitating to the, the first 10 minutes of the show for our observations, and mine is along that lines, too. How about Rami uh, getting ready for this party? Um, she, she's more like Nanny Bot 3000, mm-hmm. especially when, when Harper and Becca are standing there and she tells them, stop fidgeting. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I had flashbacks to Mary Poppins, actually, mm-hmm. is, is 
is, is more of the role that she seemed to be taking on in that. And, and then trying to talk Becca into putting a dress on. It was, uh, yeah, she was a, a bit of a stickler for, for following the rules and regulations and protocols for the Castalians. It would appear that she must have uh, at least quite a bit of diplomatic programming. Throughout the series so far, she has described herself purely as a warship. And she yeah. doesn't like backing down from a fight. And now all of a sudden she's in complete diplomat mode. Okay, yeah. This it, is how you dress. This is how you act. We're working stuff out with people, you know? And, and I want to come back to this. This is not the segment that we do this. Um, but I, w- I do want to discuss that. Uh, Rami as a diplomat versus Rami the warship. Mm-hmm. Because it does seem like they, that would be at complete odds with each other. And I know she's AI, and there's programming for both, I'm sure. But it just seems like there would be too much of a conflict between the two roles. Am I jumping ahead in, in starting that conversation? Or do we want to move on? Maybe. Let's come, let's, I, I like where you're going, but let's come back to okay, that. Okay, we'll come back okay. to that. Because I got another little observation that I want to mention real quick. Because we've already seen this in past episodes, and we've kind of let it go. But for some reason, it just really struck me this time. When Dylan goes to talk to Tyr, he's working out. And what is he doing? He's hitting a punching bag. Yeah. And we've seen him working out in previous episodes. And then all of a sudden, it's never really hit me before, but all of a sudden it dawned on me this time. In the 3,000 years between now and then, gym equipment has not advanced at all. <laughs> wow. And if anything, an... if anything, it's kind of regressed. Because at least we've got, like, you know, bow flex and stuff like that. Now you know, it, it, there's different kinds of uh, resistance we, Are weights. we going to see a treadmill at some point? I, I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> you know? A, a row, you remember rowing machines? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Some stationary stairs. I mean... You're, I see your point. It just seems like they would have something a little more advanced in the way of, of workout equipment, gym technology. The there fan wing... Builder, you know, or you mm-hmm. know, for your pecs or something right. like that. You know, that would be cool. Is that pecs on your back there? No, pecs are up here, aren't yeah. they? Yeah. Okay. Uh, you spend a lot of time at the gym, <laughs> don't you? Hi, I'm Meathead Ethan Maestri. <laughs> um, I, I do have another observation. Uh, mm-hmm. This is kind of a technological observation. I, I know we're kind of poking fun at things that we see here, but I'm actually looking at this and I'm thinking, you know, they're not, you know, Come forward 15 years. I know we're 3,000 years in in the future. Big difference. But 15 years in the future, when Chancellor uh, Shandos walks into the room Mm -hmm. and he's talking to, I I assume, to someone on the planet, he's got that little communication device. The thought occurred to me about the third time that I saw it. It looks like he's holding an iPhone 5 and talking and just talking speaker you know uh-huh. to someone you can't hear the person on the other line but he's just kind of holding it in front of his face and talking and it looks very much like an iPhone in his hand i just thought that was an interesting observation they weren't far off yeah he must have had a bluetooth that's okay so they haven't moved on too far from that technology well, yeah, or at least not that kind of you know what that is kind of interesting because that's one thing that you always see in a lot of sci-fi especially star trek yes and we've seen it in andromeda person-to-person communication it's like there is no privacy yeah. it's always on speakerphone yeah always <laughs> if someone's standing next to you they're going to hear your conversation right i mean it, it, how, how do those conversations go 
Uh, this is Chancellor Chandros. Yes, uh, Chancellor, is President Lee in the room with you? <laughs> uh, yes. Just a moment. <laughs> you, know, uh, you never see those conversations happening. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know how it is. You're standing in line at a, at a, at a gas station and someone's talking right in front of you. You can hear the whole con- It makes you uncomfortable. It's like, why are you not uncomfortable? Yeah. So I, it's just... I guess maybe everyone's just completely over privacy by then. Yeah. Uh, we, people are already complaining now that we don't have enough privacy. So maybe by that time, people are just over it. Yeah. We know we don't have any privacy, so we're just not even going to pretend. Yeah. How different would that episode be, though, if if Shandros walks into the room and someone says, Yes, uh, Chancellor, this is so-and-so from security down on the planet. In regards to the virus that you wanted uploaded to the AI aboard Andromeda uh, for murdering... <laughs> no, the- no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, how different would that episode have gone if right. you'd have had an open, calmly conversation like uh-huh. that? Yeah. Saved, saved a lot of the crew some trouble. I guess they'd have to have a lot of code words. Yeah. There was yeah. another thing. When Dylan comes walking in and he's looking for Rami... And he and she pops up with her hologram. She says, and he says, "Oh, I was just." And she finishes looking for me. I'm like, "She's everywhere. <laughs> why? Why don't you just say, Rami here now? Why do you? Why does he have to look for her?" Yeah, I didn't think too much about that, but yeah, you're right. You're right. Evidently, three thousand years from now, holding a camera is just really tiresome. <laughs> you're talking about the monocle. <laughs> <laughs> monocles have come back in style yeah <laughs> no yeah that was that was fairly interesting i don't I, I mean i understand why they had to do it that way uh budget constraints you can't do a cg floating robot like what you have in star wars or you know other big production it seems you know. like you would have to be very very disciplined to operate one of those because i mean it goes yeah. wherever your head goes <laughs> yeah don't if there are pretty ladies in the room yeah you gotta you gotta stay focused. Yeah, you, you got a handheld. You you can just hold it in place, and your your head and your eyes can wander. But you know this thing. You know it sees what you see. Yeah. So, have you, have you ever stood in front of TV cameras? I mean, have have you ever been in front of actual film crew type? You know, a cameraman or something like that. Yeah, I was on the news once. Okay, so you know on, when on that a morning ca- show promoting a uh, high school play. There, there you go. Thespian. <laughs> oh man. So, uh, you you know, when the camera's in front of you, it's time to focus, right? Uh, it, it focuses your attention and on, on what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, when someone has a GoPro on you, it's time to goof off. Yeah. <laughs> and I feel like in the future, that's all TV is going to be, is just people goofing off. Because mm-hmm. apparently that's all cameras are going to be, is either drones hovering overhead, so there's a disconnect, or, or somebody with a GoPro on the side of their head. Or in front of their eye. <laughs> right. You know, and, and, and people just aren't going to take it seriously any longer. Oh, you know what? I hear what you're saying, and it's really depressing. Because what I'm hearing you saying, reality TV is not going away. That's exactly what I'm saying. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. There you go. But, hey, at least Harper is going to make a good living at it. Yeah. Yeah, you're probably right. Of course, we're, we're, we're talking about it like it's TV. You think that... You, you think they have TV stations there? Or is it more like just YouTube? And people just dial it up, whatever. Uh, you can't stop the advertisements on YouTube anymore. No. So all of a sudden, you know, some uh, fish family is going to be down there, you know, watching on their their computers or whatever they're watch, watching it on. And all of a sudden, Seamus Harper is just going to pop up. And they're going to be like, gah, another 30-second spot. Come on, get to that 
that fish cat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Get to that fish cat fail. <laughs> I just say fish cat. I did. Uh, I'm mixing my genres here. Okay, now for something a little bit more serious. Um, Harper is ready to sacrifice himself for an AI. It, well, an AI and its body that he built. Yeah, but you know what? He can't he can't upload the body into his brain. He he wants to upload her personality into his brain. Yeah. Um which that, I think it's interesting that would have lasted all of about 2 seconds. <laughs> yeah, and I'm I'm not sure. They say that and I guess we're, again, we're we're talking 3000 years in the future, but they say that um the human brain has more capacity and more computing power than any computer that has ever been built or, you know, or... Well, I, yeah, I, and obviously they're not able to tap into it, even at this point, 3,000 years in the future. Mm-hmm. Because Rami's pretty certain that it'll it'll blow his relays. He, his brain will fry. Right. So I guess we're, what, computer technology just must be that much better than it is now. Yeah. Um, that much better than, than human how, brain. How many, how many terabytes do you think he's got jacked into that little that little thing on the side of his neck? I don't know. You know, I've got a I've got a three terabyte hard drive. I keep movies and music and stuff on, and I haven't even hardly touched it. And I've got tons and tons of stuff on it. Yeah. So, so let's say he's got let's say he's got about five hundred terabytes on there. I guess so. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> and it's and it's not enough. No, it's not quite enough. But I just thought that was just really interesting. I mean, he was ready to to just just throw himself on the sword to yeah. save Rami. Yeah. You know, I mean, call me crazy. I thought that was just really out there. Are, are we getting into what we learn about the characters in the show now? Is that are we moving into that now? I think so. I okay. think we've gone there. Yeah, and, and that's a good point because he's ready to throw tear to the fish people. You know, he he. You know, it's yeah. If tear did this, you know, let's get him off the ship. Let's preserve ourselves. Let's mm-hmm. move on. But yeah, when it comes down to Rami, obviously Harper is far more attached to Rami. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really have anywhere I'm going with that. It j- just the fact that it points out that I guess Harper really does feel, is it, it's not love because obviously Rami doesn't reciprocate. It can't, could it, can, can it be love can for, you, on Harper's part? Is it not possible to love someone or something that doesn't love you back? Well, absolutely. It happens all the time. Yeah. But can, I mean, can you really fall in love with the something that you created? I mean, and I realize as I say that, yeah, I guess he can because he created it kind of, sort of, with an ulterior motive. Mm-hmm. And, and, and things haven't worked out because Rami as a personality is quite a bit more than what Harper was probably expecting it to be. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah. Yeah, I guess he really is attached to Rami more so than any of the other crew. And so, uh, yeah, I guess what we're seeing here is that faced with the decision, throw tear to the wolves... Or throw Rami to the wolves. Harper's going to side with with Rami probably every time. Yeah, even above himself. Yes, Th- that's the thing that that is really blowing me away. Is when at first when his first option is okay, I will upload you into my brain, your personality. Probably thinking that you know they can get away from there, and he'll still have that personality. That's that he'll have Rami inside his mind. And he can use that data to recreate 
Rami again. Possibly is is what I'm thinking. He's thinking. Yeah. But then when that option goes out the window, he's like, "Okay, well then, I sacrifice myself so that she can continue to live." If that is in fact what she's doing. Here's the other question I have, and and it's not. I, I'm feeling like I need a little bit more clarification on it. Rami is the the android that Harper created. How much of Rami is integrated in with the ship still? Have, have we have we fully established that there is a, a finite or a, a definitive line or a definitive barrier between Andromeda Ascendant and Rami, the 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 android? Have we established that really? I don't I don't know that we really have I don't I'm not sure that they are. I, I think they are all um codependent upon each other um whether it's the the ship or the hologram or the android you know um, like like we learned in 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 the last episode in Rose in the Ashes uh when the android Rami was gone the ship was a complete mess yeah so here now all of a sudden it, this is occurring to me you you talking about this Dylan was going to obviously they weren't going to go through with it but they were going to put Rami on the, the chopping block essentially and have her personality or her, her, her matrix, whatever it was deconstructed. Uh, what effect would that have had on the ship? Would we have seen the same thing that we saw in Rose in the ashes? Well, they're the way I, I understood it was they're actually going to erase the ship's AI. Oh, it wasn't just going to be the, the Android body, right? It was going to be the entire ship. That's what I was getting from it. Yeah, it wasn't just the android Rami that went and and they were accusing of doing this. It was it was Andromeda. The ship itself. Right. The artificial intelligence that controls the ship and Okay. And Rami, I guess I missed android. that connection. Well, maybe I just threw it in there. That's just what I took from it. That's see, what I got. And see, and that's the point is is what do we have here as a character? Do we have a ship and then an AI? Or do we just have Andromeda Ascendant in all of its forms, and you have to accept it across whatever whatever, whatever framework it's in, mm -hmm. either, either as the ship or as a hologram or as an android standing in front of you? Yeah, well, there's definitely something going on with the, with the android Rami, because, um, again, going back to Rose in the Ashes, the ship Andromeda um, was aware that she controls you know, just hundreds of other utility androids. They're all part of her. Yeah. She sends them on suicide missions. It's nothing to her. Right. But then with Rami being gone... Mm -hmm. This particular avatar. Yes. This is a problem. Yeah, yeah. So, so there's something going on, and it must be something different with the programming, because, you know, there we saw the androids there. You know, a bunch of really lame C-3PO kind of androids. <laughs> I, I was thinking more Metropolis from the 1920s. Okay. The silent film. Okay. <laughs> That's what it reminds me of a little bit. Okay. You know, basically they were like walking mannequins. Yeah. yeah. And she just, she controls them. She has no problem losing them. And then it's not until uh, Too Loose the Fateful Lightning when Harper gets a hold of this flexi describing how to make the ship manifest in flesh. Yeah. This is clearly some sort of a different type of of uh, of uh, android 
than those other utility androids. Yeah. This is definitely a part of the ship. It is part of the ship's personality, part of the ship's AI. So there's something bigger going on. Yeah. Between the ship and and Rami. I would like to see this explored more. And I hope we get more episodes where we see, you know, ship AI relationships and things like that. I, I, I do hope we get to see that uh you know, in future episodes. Uh, I, I it's an interesting point you make there about how Harper is ready to lay lay down his life mm-hmm. as for all of Harper's faults. You know, he he's wanting to do the gentlemanly thing here and, and protect Rami, at the mm-hmm. very least, one of the crew. Right. All right. So here's something else that I, I've been thinking about on this episode, and I'm really not sure what to think about it. Obviously, Tyr has a problem with how the Castalians established their republic by killing the Volsong, mm-hmm. the Volsong pride. My question is, did he have knowledge of this ahead of time before they journeyed to the planet? Is this something that he knew had happened there? before they entered into negotiations with the Castalians. Or... I, yeah, I know. I know where you're going. You know where I'm going with yeah. this. Okay. Or did he find out as the negotiations were taking place and then suddenly this is something for him to be convinced about? Mm-hmm. I kind of think... Because you're probably... You remember that just before he busted in and broke up the party, he was looking at a flexi. Yes. Okay. So I... It, I hadn't thought about this, but since you bring up that question, I got to think that with the Nietzscheans being so interested in their genealogy and their history and everything that goes on within their prides and their their ancestors and their offshoots, he had to have had some sort of knowledge about this. I kind of think that maybe he was just uh, he was brushing up on it real quick Okay. before he went in. He, he wanted to make sure he had his facts straight. Yeah. That's that's what I would guess it was. So, what's what is public record? Uh, obviously, they're, Lee and Shandros are trying to cover up the fact that they destroyed the station because they knew that the Nietzscheans were not going to cooperate, that they would be back at some point in the future mm-hmm. and probably be worse off than what they were before. So, what's public record? Did we ever really establish what public knowledge of the event was? Lee suggests that they may have blown themselves up. Is that what public record is? Because I guess that that would incense Tyr if that's what mm-hmm. he read on that flimsy. Uh, you know, the guess is that the Volsong probably blew themselves up. Mm-hmm. I could see him getting upset about that and then walking in and accusing Lee of, of murder. Right. Because that's the state saying or, or basically stating a lie because Tyr would know they didn't commit suicide. Yeah, well, it could also be that uh, each side wrote their own history. You know, I mean... History is written by the victors. Yeah. 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 You're right. But, you know, it's also possible that the Nietzscheans had... Let's go back to um, Angel Dark Demon Bright. There was a public record, you could say, of what happened in that battle. But Tyr knew, through Nietzschean legend and stories that had been passed down... There were a whole lot more ships. There was a whole lot more stuff that went on in that battle that nobody else knew about. Right. Tyr knew because he was a Nietzschean. So he had heard the stories, and his story was actually more accurate, but nobody else knew that part of the story. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, it's true. Like you say, 
the victors write the history, but I guess, you know, the, the defeated still have their stories. True. No, you're right. That that and it makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So, that kind of we don't really know. Yeah, we really me. don't know yeah. which one he was looking at on the flexi. Maybe he was reviewing the Nietzschean legend. Maybe he was looking at the the Castilian record. Yeah. You know. Bottom line being that if he knew this ahead of time before showing up, this is not a tear move for him to wait to the last second where he can go in front of the president and you know denounce him publicly. That's not t- what Tear would have done if he knew ahead of time. Mm-hmm. He would have gone to Dylan first before they, while they were on their way to the planet, and Tear would have said, "Why are you dealing with these people? This is what they did. This is what happened. They're going to tell you otherwise." I, I feel like that conversation would have happened before they got to the planet. Yeah, Tear doesn't hold back from saying what he thinks, right? You know, unless it for some reason benefits him to hold back. And I'm not exactly sure how it would have on this one, other than it was just a uh, a personal vendetta. He wanted to go in personally and uh, call this guy out. Yeah. That, that's the only thing I could think of that for why he would do it that way if he didn't, uh, if he did already know ahead of time. And maybe he thought that if he talked to Dylan, then Dylan would have made sure that he didn't get his chance to speak his mind. That's a good point. I, 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 I can defer to that. That sounds good. <laughs> and maybe we're just as, as, fixing the writing I don't know Maybe, maybe we are yeah. This is a little retcon on our part yeah. But it, it works for me It works for me I do have a line from the, the show That I deeply appreciated And and, and it's just perfect Because now that we've established That Tyr probably was coming to this knowledge And, and, and seeing how the state was portraying The death of, of his offshoot pride Obviously, he gets wrapped up in the, the murder and everything. And <laughs> that conversation that Tyr has with Dylan, um, when all is said and done, and Tyr asks him, are you going to go ahead and turn me in? You mm-hmm. know, so, so that you can get what you want, another world in the Commonwealth. Are you going to sacrifice me for that? And Dylan balks. Mm-hmm. And, so, and Tyr, brilliant line, probably the best line so far. It even beats last week's. unauthorized entry line Uh, for me anyway for a man determined to cook history's greatest omelet (laughs) you're awfully squeamish about cracking your eggs Mm -hmm. I love that line (laughs) that is so well written I love that very well delivered Mm -hmm. I appreciated it you know something else that happened in this episode um, and I'm not using I I waited to talk about this because this isn't really something to pick on the show but it was something that that I noticed we learned something about this universe, uh, specifically the technology, there is, we, since the very first episode that we saw of Andromeda, we have seen the Force Lance. We've seen it in action. Uh, We've seen it used in several different ways. Um, This is the first time that we really get a lot of uh, exposition about the Force Lance. We, We learn about how it works. And, you know, it's kind of interesting. I wonder if if the writers knew this all along, that, uh, all these details about how the Force Lance worked as far as it, uh, you know, being coded to a, a person's DNA. Yeah. Or if this was all just stuff that they kind of came up with in order to make this episode work. At this point, this is going to be part of the plot. We're going to make this work. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you yeah. know, it's like kind of you, th- you think about um, like Star Trek. There were a lot of things where... 
um, the writers and even the actors, Spock specifically, there were a lot of things that Vulcans do because Leonard Nimoy made a decision. Um, no hypnotism. We're going to do this thing called a mind meld. Yeah. That's a thing that Vulcans do. Yeah. You know, the uh, the, the nerve pinch. This is a thing that Vulcans do. Again, in the Star Trek vein, I'm thinking of the Batleth. Yeah. And how that developed over the course of the next generation mm-hmm. and then later on in, in other series, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, there became a lore about the weapon itself, you know. Yeah. So, you know, like in the, in the beginning, we just have this, this thing. Okay, you can shoot or you can hit people with it. Pretty cool. Now, all of a sudden, this is a pretty smart piece of technology. Yes. And we're getting all of this information in one episode. Yeah. Really, to this point, we have learned nothing about the Force Lance. We've seen them in action. Yeah. A little bit. Now we know a ton about it. Yeah. So I thought that was kind of interesting. No, it is really cool. Yeah. That is really cool. Yeah, for the uh, the people that like the, the sci-fi tech. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this was a great episode for that. Mm-hmm. Because you, you did learn a lot about the Force Lance. And also written at a time when when DNA was kind of a big topic. Yeah. You know, these days... DNA is like whatever, you yeah. know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, everyone's got it. It's not a big deal. But, you know, at this time, it's still it had been maybe about a decade or so since since uh DNA was really in the public spotlight as far as something being used or we've known about DNA uh, since, you know, the 40s or the 50s really. But as far as being able to use it for any practical purpose, this is when people are really starting to become familiar and educated about DNA, what it is, how it can... Well, throughout the 90s and yeah. into the early 2000s, you have the, the Genome Project, mm-hmm. where they're trying to, to decode the human genome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's it, all DNA is front and center yeah. in science right? and now in pop culture. Yeah, yeah. it's just it, now when you say DNA, it, it sounds a little bit cliche, kind of cheesy. To me, it does anyway. I don't know. Maybe it's just me, but you put yourself back there in the year 2000. This is probably 2000 still when this was aired. Yeah, 2001. Yeah. yeah. So it, it's still a pretty big deal then. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, that is. Yeah. That's a good point. You had started to talk about something earlier in the, the discussion, and then you said, you know what, let's, let's wait. Let's get back to that. Well, yeah, go ahead. What, okay. was, what, what was it you were going to so say? So the, the discussion we were starting into was Rami Warship. Okay. Versus Rami Diplomat. Right. Uh, this is a great, and I don't know that we have enough time to really delve into it. I think we, we're probably going to come back to it in future episodes from what I vaguely remember about them. Uh, but here we do have, we have Rami the warship, uh, doesn't run from a fight mm-hmm. like you were talking about. Right. Before talking about before we have rami the diplomat that knows all these protocols and wants them to be followed meticulously Mm -hmm. it seems like there would be some conflict there Mm -hmm. because diplomacy and warfare are at odds with each other yeah right so to have an ai that can negotiate between the two function back and forth one or the other that's pretty amazing and then you have the warship aspect of it that refuses to run from a fight and yet she has to reconcile that with the diplomacy side to the point of saying, I will lay down my life. Mm-hmm. I, I, I was compromised. I will lay down my life in order to preserve a diplomatic outcome. Mm-hmm. I almost want to say it's at odds yeah. with her base programming. 
and I, I as I've thought about this as we as we've been discussing, I kind of have a problem with that. Mm-hmm. There, there's a bit of a there's a bit of a double standard within Rami or, or within Andromeda Ascendant, right? And, and I'm not quite sure how to reconcile that just yet. And maybe she doesn't either. And, and maybe that's that's just the uh, just that's the way it's written. Maybe it's just a couple of different subroutines, and they can manually switch. Maybe Dylan has to give the order, stand down, and we're going to talk about it. And then, you know, maybe that, that just switches. Clicks over to di- diplomacy yeah. mode. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I don't know. I mean, it does. It just seems so weird because to this, you're right, to this point that we have watched this show so far, she has pretty much always been with the one exception. She's always been, I'm a warship, I don't back down from a fight, talking is for losers, unless <laughs> unless Dylan's life is involved. Yeah. It's it's kind of a weird thing. Yeah. So I, maybe maybe we're not giving her artificial intelligence enough credit. Yeah. I'm hoping what happens is as we see this show progress, we're going to get a better fix on Andromeda as a character. Here, this has been a couple of episodes now. Uh, I can't think of the last one where we've kind of touched on Rami as a character. Mm-hmm. We're really starting to see her come to the fore yeah. as a character in the story. Someone that you think about and that you're vested in. Mm-hmm. And there's some quirks about her that I don't feel like I've gotten a handle on just yet. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing more episodes where we get to see a few more of the boundaries of what she is and how she operates. I got to say that makes me uncomfortable. Why? Because I don't care much for AI and I'm definitely not <laughs> comfortable with an AI that's quirky. <laughs> okay. I'm just saying, have you heard of the HAL 9000? I have heard of HAL 9000. If, if you don't know what that is, look it up. It turned out bad. So Ethan, the quote at the beginning of this episode was democracy may be only a few steps removed from anarchy, but at least it's not as loud. Obviously, CNN is not around at this point. <laughs> no, I will say this was a, a a decent episode. The saying kind of sets the framework of democracy versus anarchy, and Dylan certainly is wrestling with due process. And, and working within an established system, within the, the realms of the Republic, not being viewed as above the law. Because once you take that point of view, it becomes anarchy. Uh, it, it's every man for himself. But Dylan is trying to work within those bounds. Um, but really, the point of this whole episode, I felt like, was that people were just... This was about people ready to fall on their sword mm-hmm. in order to preserve the people or the ideals that they hold dear. And when you have a group of people that that's their that's their motivation for action, you have anarchy. It's not a democracy at that point. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's how, that's how I kind of viewed it. So what I take away is this idea that that Dylan talks about public trial versus private revenge. You have a lot of people. You have uh, Tyr who has his own agenda. You have the colonel who has her own agenda and tries to act on it. You have Harper who has his own agenda, tries to take the fall. You have Rami. Well, I guess Rami actually does the, the only right thing. She offers herself up for execution. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And then you have the the president who's ultimately found to be guilty of this this crime. And it fosters unrest. So essentially, you kind of have this wrestling. And I guess it is appropriate because you have this wrestling of anarchy versus due process and ultimately what would be democracy, I guess. So mm-hmm. in the end, having just gone through that whole rant, uh, I guess this really is a good statement <laughs> to have at the, fir- at the front of this episode. Mm-hmm. Something that I noticed regarding this quote, it was it's a, this is from the, the Than Homogeny. And we don't know much about the Than at this point. But they seem to be well. They're 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 like bugs, yeah. and that's kind of of the of the couple of than that we've seen so far. That's kind of how they present themselves. Um, the expression about being for the hive. Um, they're they're just kind of a they're 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 like a I don't want to say a collective, or but maybe you know they're just all part of a hive. Yeah, I kind of when I think of that, I kind of think of Borg. They're communists. Could be. I don't know. <laughs> Communal living. Yeah. I mean, uh, it just seems like it's it's just uh, they're all working together for the same purpose. Whatever happens, happens to right. them individually. It doesn't matter. They work collectively as a hive. Um, they refer to themselves as a hive. Yeah. You think about like bees or ants. They work together as a hive. If one has to be sacrificed in order for the the the... The good of the many outweighs the good of the few. Yeah, so, you're blending genres again, but I, yeah, okay. Yeah, I know, but <laughs> but you know, but 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 that's that's the whole thing with with the fan from what I'm picking up so far. Yeah, there what, there is no democracy with the fan. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I see where you're going with that, and mm-hmm. and that is an interesting point because this was, and, and I assume it says it's, it's crowned in starlight. Is that the name of the fan hegemon? It could be because they got weird names like that. Yeah, they do. <laughs> So this is this is the Than Hegemon. This is the leader of the Than, talking about the fact that they have a democracy. I, I, am I am I misreading that? Are you, are you misreading that they have? Did, did I misread that? Is is this the leader of the Than? The Than Hegemon is. It, I mean, that's that's how I wrote it down. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Good. So this is that possibly the leader of the Than, mm-hmm. and he's talking about them being a democracy. And you're right; they're a hive species. It seems kind of at odds, doesn't it? See, I'm not getting that at all. Really, uh, okay. I don't. I don't think they're a, they're a democracy. Okay. No, in fact, if, if anything, they're they're like a collective. They're a, they're an, all thought is the same. So you're reading this basically as him making an observation yeah. about democracy, right? Okay. See, I mean, if he says okay. that democracy is only a few steps away from anarchy, that's not promoting democracy. True. I mean, if anything, that's that's he's trying to point out what he feels is the folly. Of democracy. Okay, so I I did I, I interpreted that all wrong. I I apologize. Well, don't apologize. We don't know who's right. True. So that that's the thing. We don't know anything about this universe. So it's all just it's all up in the air. But but then in the end he says, but at least it's not as loud. So democracy is bad. Anarchy's worse. <laughs> yeah. You know. And when you're in a hive full of bugs, mm-hmm. that's saying a lot. <laughs> yeah. All right. So all great Neptune's oceans. What what was your thoughts? Just sum it all up. Well, I I have problems with the production value, and we touched a little bit on it, like the the, the Gill thing, and mm-hmm. the, I. You can obviously tell that there's limitations in their budget, in the things that they have to work with, and for that reason, I kind of have a problem with watching this episode. If you're looking for st- if you're looking for something visually sci-fi, this is not a good episode to watch. Mm-hmm. 
if you're looking for a good sci-fi story and maybe a little bit of a, a whodunit, this is a great episode. Uh, I thought it was very well written. I like the author. Uh, who did I say that was earlier? Uh, Walter John Williams. Uh, I, I I think he does a good job with with telling the story. And we, like you talked about earlier, we get a little, lot of exposition about some of the technology, uh, the Force Lance specifically. Um, so it's a it's a great episode for getting a little bit deeper view into the universe. And, and if you're looking for a good story, it's a, it's a good one to watch. But if you're looking for just something visually, uh, I think you need to move on. You need to find a different episode. Mm-hmm. I like it, but I don't like it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess is ultimately what it comes down to. Okay. As far as some of the things that we learn, um, I, I do appreciate it for that. Uh, like the Force Lance, um, some of the things about Rami and Harper. The, the rest of it, really, I could do without. Um, in fact, I kind of feel like I've already seen it. If you have already seen the uh, Star Trek original series Court Martial, and then combine that with the animated series episodes The Emburgess Element and The Slaver Weapon, then you've seen this episode. <laughs> You're reaching for analogies there. Am I? Uh, no, I mean, that's I'm just my opinion. Court Martial, you got a who done it? Yeah, you're and right. Emburgess Element, you've got water breathing creatures. No, I see it. I okay. see it. Yeah. Slaver weapon, you've got this 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 <laughs> weapon that turns on people if you're if you're not its owner. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, I've I've seen it before. True. So I don't know. I if what I always go back to is if if I'm going to take an episode of Andromeda and say to someone who has never seen Andromeda, you got to watch this show. This is not the episode I'm going to show them. It, this is pretty far down on the list. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't mean to be unkind, but I will show them to loose the faithful lightning first. Ooh. Before I don't, I show I don't think I'm as down on it as you are. But you're right. You're right. It is not the first one that I would suggest by any means. The tubes coming out of people's neck is just weird, man. Yeah. Well, they did that with the Borg, and it worked. Yeah, but the Borg were cool. <laughs> These are fish people. Yeah. I mean, you got half human, half cyborg. That That's cool. Yeah. You know, you can... They got lasers coming out of their eyes, too. So, you know, mechanical hands. They're dangerous. You're scared of them. As, right. a, as a viewer, you're scared of you them. You wouldn't be afraid of a Castilian no, fish person. So. No, just you're throw right. some salt on them. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Maybe I'm being too hard on it. Let, let me know. Out there, let me know if I'm being too hard on it. Or if, if Ethan's being too easy on it. Let us know. We'd like to know. Either way, Ethan, how can they get a hold of us? Uh, they can do so by email, drivebackthenightpodcast at gmail.com. That's right. We're also on the social media, Facebook and Twitter. We use the handle AndromedaPod on both of those. We want to thank our friend, Tim Kimmerly, for giving us his voice for the opening quotes, beginning of each episode, including this one. Don't forget, you can find us on andromedaseries.podbean.com. That's our home. And we're on iTunes. Uh, yeah, give us some stars. Leave a review. We would certainly appreciate it. That is Drive Back the Night Podcast. We are an Age of Geek production. Check them out, www.ageofgeek.com. We invite you to come back and join us again next week as we discuss the episode, The Pearls That Were His Eyes. Mm-hmm.